Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday. Sorry about last weekend. We got a little bit of a glitch in the uh, in the reading. Too much noise in the background. Truth be told, I have my cat in here, and he's just driving me crazy. But anyways, aside from that, let's get started. We'll review chapter 13, and then we'll jump right into the book. The final chapter of Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. It would be chapter 14, the conclusion it's called. But let's do a review first and see where we are with that. Now, uh, chapter 13, we're back in London where the whole thing, all where everything started. They have Jefferson Hope shackled up after the uh, after uh, Sherlock's own little posse of Arabs down below there talked Jefferson Hope into coming upstairs thinking he's going to pick up a you know, a fare for his cab, but uh, Sherlock ends up putting uh, handcuffs on him. So the fiction to uh, bring him down to the jailhouse and uh, Jefferson Hope says, hey, you know, you can take these things off me. I don't have any beef against you guys. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not, I'm done running. You know, I'll own up to whatever I've done type of thing. So the two policemen are a little leery on the idea, but uh, Sherlock just being a bad eye and took all the shackles off him. And then, then uh, Jefferson asked if he could, you know, say his piece. And the, the two policemen said, well, whatever you say here is going to use against you in court and all this kind of thing, which was good because Jefferson knew that. So Jefferson gave, they gave Jefferson a chance to explain the whole affair, how he tracked him down, how he made them choose between the good pill and the bad pill, calling a twist of fate, you know, if they, if they would have took the, the uh, good pill, like Drebber, took the good pill, and Jefferson took the bad pill. Well, in Jefferson's eyes, that was God's decision, and so be it. And then, of course, as we know, Drebber took the bad pill, and according to Jefferson Hope, that was justice served right there. Standerson, on the other hand, he was offered the same deal with the good and bad pill, but he decided to fight his way out of it. And Jefferson ended up stabbing him in the heart, and as far as he was concerned, he would have paid his debt whether he took the pill, the bad pill, or fight with him and get stabbed in the heart. So justice was done there too. So in Jefferson's mind, both men paid a debt for the death of John Ferrier and for the death of uh, the Flower of Utah, Lucy. Then we come to find out they're sitting there and... Uh, Jefferson asked Dr. Watson to listen to his heart. Watson goes ahead and does that, and they soon all discover that uh, Jefferson has an aortic aneurysm, which sounds awful, and it's ready to burst at any time. So they got that written down, and then uh, Constable Lestrade is finished writing everything down, then after that was all done, they decided they got to bring uh, Jefferson down to the jailhouse to wait for the magistrate to go to court for his crimes. So, now, chapter 14, the conclusion. We had all been warned to appear before the magistrate upon the Thursday. But when Thursday came, there was no occasion for our testimony. A higher judge taken the matter in hand, and Jefferson Hope had been summoned before a tribunal where strict justice would be meted out to him. However, on the very night after his capture, the aneurysm burst, 
and he was found in the morning stretched upon the floor of his cell, with a placid smile upon his face, as though he had been able in his dying moments to look, look back upon a useful life and on work well done. <laughs> that makes me, makes me laugh. Good job on murdering those two guys, man. Good job. Gregson and Lestrade would be wild about, their, about his death, Holmes remarked as we chatted over it next evening. Where will their grand advertisement be now? I don't see that they have very much to do with this capture in the first place, I answered. This is uh, Watson, of course. What you do in this world is a matter of no consequence, returned my companion bitterly. The question is, what can you make people believe that you have done? Never mind, he continued more brightly after a pause. I would have not missed this investigation for anything. There has been no better case within my recollection. Simple as it was, there were several most instructive points about it. Simple, I ejaculated, or yelled. Well, really, I can, it, it can hardly be described as otherwise, said Sherlock, smiling at my surprise. The proof of its intrinsic simplicity is that without any help. Save a few ordinary deductions, I was able to lay my hand upon a criminal within three days, Watson. Three days. This is true, I said. This is true. I've already explained to you what is out of the common is usually a guide rather than a hindrance. In solving a problem of this sort, the grand thing is to be able to reason backwards. That is a very useful, useful accomplishment and a very easy one. But people do not practice it much. In the everyday affairs of life, it is more useful to reason forward. And so the other becomes neglected. There are 50 who can reason synthetically for the one who can reason analytically. I confess, I said, that I do not quite follow you. So, as usual, Watson is lost when Sherlock's trying to explain him something. I hardly expected that you would. Let me see if I can make it more clear for you, said Sherlock. Most people, if you describe a train of events to them, will tell you what the result would be. They could put those events together in their minds and argue from them that something will come to pass. However, there are a few people who, if you had told them the result, will be able to evolve from their own inner consciousness what the steps were which led up to that result. This power is what I mean when I talk of reasoning backward or analytically. I understand, said I, I understand. Now, this was a case in which you were given the result and had to find everything else for yourself. Now, let me endeavor to show you the different steps in my reasoning. To begin at the beginning, I approached the house, as you know, on foot, with my mind entirely free from all impressions. I naturally began examining the roadway, and there, as I already explained to you, I saw clearly the marks of a cab, which I ascertained by inquiry must have been there during the night. I satisfied myself that it was a cab and not a private carriage by the narrow gauge of the wheels. The ordinary London growler is considerably less wide than a gentleman's broham. This was the first point gained. I then walked slowly down the garden path, which happened to be composed of, clay, of a clay soil peculiarly suitable for taking impressions. No doubt it appeared to you to be a mere trampled line of slush, but to my trained eyes 
and it marks upon the surface. Had a meeting. There is no branch of detective science which is so important and so much neglected as the art of tracing footsteps. Happily, as I always laid a great stress upon it, and much practice that made it second nature to me. I saw the heavy footmarks of the constables, but I saw also the tracks of two men who had first passed through the garden. It was easy to tell that they had been there before the others, because in places their marks had been entirely obliterated or ruined by others coming upon top of them. In this way, my second link was formed, which told me that the nocturnal visitors were two in number, one remarkable for his height, as I calculated from the length of his stride, and the other fashionably dressed, to judge from the small, elegant impression left by the boots. Square toes, remember that? On entering the house, this last inference was confirmed. My well-booted man lay before me. The tall one, then, had done the murder, if murder there was. There is no wound upon the dead man's person, but the agitated expression upon his face assured me that he had foreseen his fate before it came upon him. Men who die from heart disease or any sort of natural causes never by any chance exhibit agitation upon their features. Having sniffed the dead man's lips, I detected a slight sour smell, and I came to the conclusion that he had been poisoned forced upon him. He had poison forced upon him. Again, I argue that it had been forced upon him but from the hatred and the fear expressed upon his face. So can you imagine his face when he realized that, remember it was a good and bad pill, so he took the uh, bad pill, and I guess by the time it starts working, you start realizing, uh-oh, I took the bad pill. And this is all the, the quotation, you know, all the weird face facial expressions of death came about. By the method of exclusion, I had arrived at this result, for no other hypothesis would meet the facts. Do not imagine it was a very unheard of idea. The forcible administration of poison is by no means a new thing in criminal minds. The cases of Dolsky and Odessa and Lecher and Montpellier will occur at once to any toxologist. And now came the great question as to the reason why. Why did this man lay here dead? Robbery had not been the object of the murder, for nothing was taken. Was it politics then, or was it a woman? That was the question which confronted me. I was inclined from the first to the latter supposition. Political assassins are only too glad to do their work and to fly. The murder, on a, the murder had, on the contrary, had been done most deliberately, and the perpetrator had left his tracks all over the room showing that he had been there all the time. It must have been a private wrong and not a political one, which called for such methodical revenge. Hush. When the inscription was discovered upon the wall, I was even more inclined than ever to, to my own opinion. The thing was too evidently a blind. When the ring was found, however, it settled the question. Clearly, the murderer had used it to remind him of his victim of some dead or absent woman. It was at this point I asked Gregson whether he had inquired in his telegram to Cleveland as to any particular point in Mr. Drebber's former career. He answered, if you remember, in a negative. Then I proceeded to make a careful examination of the room, which confirmed me in my opinion as to the murderer's height, and furnished me with the attritional detail of the cigar he was smoking and the length of his nails. 
I already come to the conclusion, since there are no signs of a struggle, that the blood which covered the floor had burst in the murderer's nose in his excitement. Because he has that aneurysm, I guess. I could perceive that this track of blood coincided with the track of his feet. It is seldom that any man, unless he is fully is very full-blooded, breaks out in this through emotion. So I haphazard the opinion that the criminal is probably a robust, ruddy-faced man. Events proved that I had judged it correctly. Let me just read that again. It is seldom that any man, unless he is a very full-blooded, breaks out in, in this way through emotion. So I hazard the opinion that the criminal was probably a robust, ruddy-faced man. Events proved that he had judged correctly. Having left the house, I proceeded to do what Gregson had neglected to do. I telegraphed the head of the police in Cleveland, limiting my inquiry to the circumstances connected with the marriage of Enoch Weber. Darity applied for the protection of the law against an old rival in love named Jefferson Hope, and that his and that this same Hope was present in Europe. I knew now that I had the clue to the mystery in my hand, and all that remained was to secure the murderer. So he knew about Jefferson Hope right from the get-go. Right after, because once he left the uh, Brixton apartment where the, where the murder was, he called Cleveland. Because uh, Gregson didn't gain any information at all from that. I had already determined in my own mind that the man who walked into the house with Drebber was none other than the man who had driven the cab. The marks in the road show me that the horse had wandered on a way which had been impossible had there been anyone in charge of it. So nobody was watching a horse and just started walking around doing his own thing. Where, then, could the driver be if he wasn't out there holding onto the horse, unless he was inside the house? Again, it is absurd to suppose that any sane man would carry out a deliberate crime under the very eyes, as it were, of a third person, who was sure to betray him. Lastly, supposing one man wished to dog another through London, what better means could he adopt than turn to a cab driver? Brilliant thinking. All these considerations led me to the irresistible conclusion that Jefferson Hope has to be found among the Jarvis of the metropolis. They got a lot of weird different names for the folks in the, in the city of London, don't they? Here they call them the Jarvis. Or Jarvis. If he had been one there for was... If he had been one there, was no reason to leave that he had ceased to be. Let me repeat that. If he had been one there, if he had been, comma, was there no reason to believe that he had ceased to be? On the contrary, from his point of view, any sudden change would be likely to draw attention to himself. He would probably, for, at least, for a time at least, continue to perform his duties as a cab driver, you know. There was no reason to suppose that he was going under an assumed name. Why should he change the name in a country where no one knew him anyways? I therefore organized my little street Arab detective corps and sent them systematically to every cab proprietor in London until they ferreted out the man that I wanted. How well they succeeded and how quickly he took advantage of are still fresh in your recollection. The murder of Standerson was an incident which was entirely unexpected, but which could hardly in any case have been prevented. Through it, as you know, I came into possession of the, of the pills. 
The existence of which one are already surmised. You see, the whole is a chain of logical sequences without a break or a flaw. It is wonderful, I cried. Your marriage should be publicly recognized. You should publish an account of the case. If you won't, I will do it for you, said Watson. It was the, it was the echo of the day for the, in the paragraph which he pointed the vote of the, to the case in question. So it's already been written in the paper. The public has said, have lost a sensational treat through the sudden death of the man, Hope, who was suspected of murder of, of Mr. Enoch Beber and of Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The details of the case have probably never been known by now, though we are informed upon good authority that the crime was a result of an old-standing romantic feud in which love and Mormonism bore apart. It seems that both the victims belonged in their younger days to the Latter-day Saints and Hope, the deceased prisoner hails also from Salt Lake City. If the case had no other effect, it at least brings out in the most striking manner the efficiency of our detective police force. <laughs> it will serve as a lesson to all foreigners that they will do wisely to settle their feuds at home and do not carry them out here on British soil. Otherwise, our elite police force will get you. It's an open secret that the credit of this smart catcher belongs entirely to the well-known Scotland Yard officials, Messrs. Lestrade and Gregson. The man was apprehended, it appears, in the rooms of a certain Mr. Sherlock Holmes, who has himself as an amateur shown some talent in the detective line, <laughs> and who, with such instructors, may hope in time to attain to some degree of their skill, as expected at testimonial. Testimonial of some sort will be presented to the two officers as for a fitting recognition of their services. Didn't I tell you this when we started? cried Sherlock Holmes with a laugh, that the result of all our study in the Scarlet will get them a testimonial. When it certainly did. Ah, never mind, answer, never mind. I have all the facts in my journal, and the public shall know them. In the meantime, you must make yourself contented by the consciousness of success. Like the Roman miser says. Okay, I'm going to try and read some Greek or uh, some Latin, so bear with me. Populus mi sibilat ami plado, epes dominus simil acumunis contempler ela arca. That's what it says right there. I'll try it again. Populus, populus mi sibilat ami plado, ipsi dominus simul acumus. Contemplar in Arca. In other words, the public hiss at me, but I cheer myself when I'm in my own house. I contemplate the coins in my strong box. So in other words, Sherlock is basically saying that the, the public has no idea what I can do or they can't do. I know what I can do. And I'll contemplate my own uh, spoils we'll say, in my own home, basically. And that there is the end of the book, ladies and gentlemen, A Study in Scarlet. I thought it was quite good. I really enjoyed reading it for you. So I hope everybody liked it and enjoyed it. And uh, like I always say, try to spread the word a little bit. I'm trying to get an audience to grow here a little bit on this. I really enjoy doing it, and I will apologize again for the missteps. I have a hard time with a few words. I freely admit that, 
I'm not perfect at this by any means. So that being said, um, next Sunday, we're going to start the next book that was written by uh, Doyle in the Sherlock Holmes series. The next book is called The Sign of Four. I hope everybody has a good week, and I'll see you all next Sunday. Bye for now.